This is Power 1 and 2 Digital, the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. All right, eight minutes after the hour of eight o'clock. Thank you so much, Soundplay Auto Services, for powering our eight o'clock news brief. All right, all right, gentlemen, so we're back. Um, of course, Dr. Valmiki Arjun is still with us, and we are expecting Mr. Vasant Barath to join us, and there he is. So good morning to Vasant as well. Hi, good morning, Steve. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Valmiki. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, just before we head to Vasant, thank you for joining us, Vasant. Balmiki, uh, Dr. Ashwin, you, you started to, to the presentation of some data that you wanted to underscore point. If you could continue in that train, please. Oh, I, was, I was speaking about the uh, digitization. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the digitization, um, and I noticed he, he, in the budget, he, he went a bit speaking about that. Um, strange thing, though, is that the, the, the achievements that, that he he said that 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 they they would have um that would have been there are, are some of them are, have actually been there for a few years now like for example the, the bureau of standards um where you can pay your your customs declarations online or debit or credit cards that's actually been there since 2019. what i did find strange is that a few budgets ago the minister spoke about implementing at customs um the multiple electronic funds transfer window that is going to allow the those who are importers to be able to pay all their duties and import charges electronically online so that you don't have to go and line up at a customs cashier in order to to to, to, to pay to clear to clear your goods in fact what's happening for, for several months now is that you don't have adequate customs cashers present at the port so what may happen is that your broker might have to go to another bond and if he's lucky he may get to pay there so all of these things add up and cause the importer to, to, to pay rent, additional rent charges, damage, etc. at the port, and of course drives up his cost of doing business. I think by now, given that countries in the region, Jamaica, again, they've implemented this, this electronic funds transfer window where you can make 100% of, of, of um, payments to the government, to the state sector, to state agencies, etc. 100% of it can be done online. Countries like Zambia, they've been doing it since I think 2016, 2017. So, we have the technology here already. That's a strange thing. I don't know. I can't imagine what is keeping us back from implementing this because it's these issues sound smaller, but they affect thousands of people, thousands of importers. But they, the they don't the sound sound small. And this is a good cue to bring Vasant Bharat into the conversation because he. Excuse me, folks. I actually have another interview that oh, I showed okay. him right. minutes right. ago. Dr. Ashwin, thank you so much. Thank we you so much. This morning. Thank you for spending yeah, the time with us. Much. All the best to All you, right. Dr. Bharat Arjun. Vasan, the expression on your face <laughs> speaks volumes to me because it's like, I, I, from the expression on your face, it's like a deja vu, you know? It's the same conversations over and over as a former minister of trade and industry and holding several other significant high cabinet portfolios. What does it feel like to you to hear us, th- these promises or these projections about critical elements of our development being made. And we have this implementation deficit impacting our ease of doing business and the general development of Trinidad and Tobago. Morning, Paul. Morning, Steve. Morning. Morning. Now, um, you're right. I, I, I feel a sense of deja vu, but I also feel a, a sense of there's a sense of tragedy in all of this because all the past other governments can be blamed for a lack of implementation or not implementing as they had promised. I think that the circumstances in which we find ourselves um, in Trinidad and Tobago and the rest of the world, of course, but obviously we are always we're always going to be positioning ourselves and um, we're always going to be positioning ourselves uh, against the rest of the world in terms of how we compete with the rest of the world, how we uh, accelerate our growth, how we improve the quality of lives of our people, how we improve our social circumstances. So, like it or not, um, there's always going to be that inbuilt for resources, whether it's our human resources, keeping them here or letting them leave shores and go elsewhere to contribute to the lives and economies of our countries, or whether it's uh, financial resources that are available worldwide that would assist us in either terms of grant funding or loan funding. We are always competing with the rest of the world. 
position in which we find ourselves today is even more critical because, of course, coming out of COVID, there is a significant um, deterioration in public finances in Trinidad and Tobago. And I would have liked to have seen the Minister of Finance, and I think it was imperative for the Minister of Finance, not what I would have liked to have seen. It, it, would have, it is imperative for whoever is holding the reins at this point in time, we've created the conditions for what I would call robust, resilient, and inclusive, and that's the important part, inclusive growth for as a country, we keep missing the mark a long way every time we read a budget, because a budget can no longer be a, a balancing of the books or an accounting bookkeeping exercise. That's two things. It has to address the social and economic position of the citizens of the country. Rasan, one sec. I'm going to turn off my camera because we seem to have a bandwidth problem. Yeah. And I want to hear what you're saying clearly. Some you can continue the conversation, but I'm going to just turn off my camera, so don't be shocked yeah, if you see. I know he right? like he getting a little um, feed, so I'll take off mine. So go ahead, please. Yeah, a budget can no longer be a situation of just balancing the books or of uh, it being a pure bookkeeping exercise. Because a budget in today's world has to take into account social implications of people's current circumstances, their social and economic situation, as well as charting a course that the population can buy into and become a part of for the future, for the development of themselves, their, their, their future circumstances, and the opportunities it gives to their children in the future to continue to want to live uh, and stay in Trinidad and Tobago. And we continue to miss the point. I don't know whether it is just sheer incompetence. I don't know if it is deliberate that you need to keep people waiting in hope. I don't know what it is, but the reality is it is not good for the country. And what we have here is a pressure cooker uh, type situation that's building in the country. And I, I don't think this minister cares, quite frankly. I really don't think he does. And I say that. Um, based on what I've seen over the last six years and his attitude and his level of arrogance and the way he deals with people. I don't think he really cares. Um, and that is, a when I started off, I said, this is, this is an absolute tragedy for Trinidad and Tobago because this budget will do very little to, um, to improve the quality of lives of people in any meaningful way. And our reality is that the rest of the world is moving ahead and uh, we're not just staying stagnant, we are actually regressing in the whole scheme of things. And as we develop the conversation, I'll tell you why I'm seeing those things. Now, you had been part of government's what's, what's the roadmap to recovery team, yes. having contributed greatly to that. And that part, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the intention of putting together that team of persons not only from within the government, because you form part of another government, which was, to me, a great move looking at the, the, the people who the government thought could make a contribution, regardless of polit so-called political affiliation. And part, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the mandate of that was not only to look at the way through COVID, but look at the way to position the country post-COVID in a more strategic manner. Would that be correct? So, does this budget fall in alignment with what you know came out of those discussions and that document or that exercise? Well, I, it's not just this budget. There was a budget read last year um, uh, post the Roadmap Committee's recommendations. I would say, Paul, I would be hard-pressed uh, to find any of the recommendations that were made in any of the areas, whether it's agriculture, whether it's construction, finance, uh, social development, I would find it extremely difficult or hard-pressed to say that um, very much, in fact, very little uh, has been uh, implemented or has been recommended for implementation um, over the last two years. So the, answer, the, the, the brief answer is no, not very, not very much. Um, has actually um, been implemented or even promoted as being uh, implementable in the near future. 
So is that part of the tragedy you described earlier on? You you bring to what I consider great minds together. You had an economic advisory commission led by one of the most preeminent economist uh, thinkers in the country, Dr. Farrell. He walks out, I'm presuming, due to frustration because, of course, what's the point if I, if you have me and Bodham advising you and nothing is being implemented or little is being implemented? And what is being, and if what was being implemented was moving us in, a, in, the, in the direction that people could feel optimistic, have confidence, that's one thing. But there is a general sense of apathy, my perception, a general sense of wavering hopelessness in many instances, and a real pressure cooker situation. I agree with that fully. Developing in society that maybe is not being perceived by the, by the government. Well, I come back to what I said earlier on. Uh, it would be unfathomable that the government does not perceive it, because I'm sure the members of parliament um, on the government bench will be hearing it from their, from their constituents on a daily basis. Uh, and I'm sure that members of parliament and ministers of government listen to talk shows and listen to the sentiment being expressed by citizens across the country. I come back to the fact that I, I just, I, I truly do not believe that the Minister of, of Finance cares one way or the other. He is, and, and it's, I mean, you, you don't have to hypothesize as to why um, Dr. Farrell left. He stated it openly that his recommendations were being ignored. Um, so that in itself uh, tells you- but, but why would the Minister of Finance not care what political expediency? I don't understand why a sitting Minister of Finance who understands the implications politically and otherwise of what is being chorused from the society would not care. To me, it's anathema to the interests of the government uh, and not, not only their supporters, but the country as a whole. It, is it easy to dismiss everything that is not in alignment with their perspective as being just political rhetoric or opposition talk? Or is it that there is a genuine sentiment of discontent and hopelessness and pressure on the most vulnerable in society that has to be heard? Well, I cannot believe that it's incompetence, competence on the part of um, the minister, but certainly if you don't know what you're doing, then you must seek help. And in the, in the instance where the Economic Advisory Board was appointed and genuine recommendations were, were being made, I mean, Dr. Farrell didn't resign after three months. I think for a, a couple of years at least. So at least he attempted uh, to get the job done, and it's only in frustration that he 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 determined or made a determination that he was wasting his, and so did everybody else on that uh, advisory board. Everybody uh, eventually resigned. Um, so I generally don't think it's a situation that help is not available if help is sought. And, and I just honestly believe, having experienced the last six years of uh, zero growth in Trinidad and Tobago, that the minister himself does not care to listen to anybody else but himself. And quite frankly, uh, incompetence, and he is incompetent in this particular portfolio. He's, he's ill-suited. I've said this from day one. We, uh, the, the position of Ministry of Finance is a pivotal one in the development of growth uh, economic growth in Trinidad and Tobago, particularly at this juncture of our development. And he doesn't have the requisite skills. That's a, that's a fact. That is not an opinion. That is a fact. Uh, he doesn't have the expertise. He doesn't have the qualifications. He doesn't have the experience in this particular, particular realm to be able to determine the future of Trinidad and Tobago. But worse, he's not clearly, uh, and, and, and evidence points to that, he's not willing to listen to those who may know better because he believes he knows everything. And that's that's our, that's our problem. That's where we are. It, you know, I keep saying to people, if you have a problem, you're not going to go to the, the car mechanic down the road. You're going to seek the best possible heart surgeon that money can buy that you can afford, and you're going to go to that person. Um, here we are when we have not sought out the best and the brightest to lead us through a very difficult position. And therein lies the problem. So therefore, 
You're well, Mr. Malraux, the, the Minister of Finance didn't appoint himself. And he doesn't, he no, no, absolutely. He <laughs> cannot continue to keep himself there if someone didn't think he was doing a, at least a credible job. Well, and, and, well fair enough. I, I'm, just, I'm just postulating to you that the buck obviously stops with the leader, um, but ultimately the, 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 the um, person in position also has to understand his or her limitations and seek help if help is required. One of the comments that recently has stirred the eye of the population in some quarters, because we had a kind of mixed poll this morning, and it was a comment from the Prime Minister that the public service is indisciplined and the country lacks the infrastructure for work from home uh, situations, which is a wider conversation about productivity and its impact on development, including the transportation policy or lack thereof and grid in the country. Uh, and to me, it's emblematic of a wider inability for the state to understand its role in alleviating these issues. So what COVID-19 did, um, gentlemen, who, by the way, who's Ruben? Ruben is the technical support. <laughs> He's the boss. Right. Um, um, by, uh, you know, what, what COVID-19 did do was give us a golden opportunity to what I would call press the reset button. To try to understand that and recognize, more important, to recognize that we have deep underlying fundamental structural problems in Trinidad and Tobago. And they are not, it's not insurmountable. They, these are not insurmountable problems, but we keep ignoring them. We keep glossing over them. We, put, we keep putting plasters on the soils and we keep kicking the can down the road. So just to, just to name a few, uh, in my opinion, the minister continues to ignore and not deal with that continues to create major problems for the citizens of Trinidad and Tobago. The, the whole issue of, of the economy, um, in terms of the diversification of it, in terms of creating the ease of doing business, which we've spoken about, um, you alluded to productivity and competitiveness. These are serious, major structural problems that are not impossible to resolve, but you've got to you've got to hit them head on. The issue of food security and the and the long-standing problems of uh, land tenure, um, gluts in the market, um, larceny, water either too much or too little, um, infrastructural issue, issues in terms of access and in terms of uh, access into and out of uh, farms, uh, issue of financing and so on. And the third and very important area, which is what I mentioned, inclusive growth, because inclusive eventually to social decay and social problems and upheaval. Um, the whole issue of inequity in our society, which COVID, of course, uh, highlighted people's access to healthcare. Uh, in Trinidad and Tobago, it's common knowledge that if you are, you know, if you become gravely ill, Unless you can afford to go to a private institution, um, your future would be very dim going to a public institution. And so therefore you create a situation in a society where only if you have money, you can live a long, healthy life. That's the reality of where we are. The whole issue of homelessness, the whole issue of uh, domestic violence, uh, the issue of inequities in education where a lot of people who may not have access to electronic devices or, or, or may they may have an electronic device, but it's useless because they live in a rural area where there is no internet access. These are all serious, fundamental uh, challenges, that we, structural problems that we need to confront. In addition, of course, we have the issue of crime that is a major deterrent uh, for business activity and for um, any other kind of activity, leisure activity and all kinds of things. Uh, we have traffic, this traffic situation, which you just talked about, Paul, um, you know, the, whole, the whole issue of mental health uh, in Trinidad and people's state of mind and their ability to uh, 
um, you know, be calm at work and be productive at work and to be just calm. quality of life, just quality of life. Yeah, that's absolutely. Four hours a day you know, in, tra- in, tra- in, tra- in traffic. Yeah, you have you have the flooding issue that has existed for 50, 40 years. Um, report after report has just been filed in people's desk drawers. And then you talk about the reform of the public service. Because ultimately, whatever policy decisions made are made by um, by policymakers and ministers in particular, government in particular, cabinet, we have to rely on the public service to be able to dispense those goods and services in an efficient manner. So those are all serious problems. And the reality is you cannot just leave it to chance and hope that somebody will fix it or it will fix itself. We are a small country of 1.3 million people. We have vast resources, regardless of what the minister of finance has told us. We are in this financial position, and I've heard it being said recently that, oh, the Minister of Finance has found himself in a difficult position because of our revenue position. Well, the point is that this is all self-inflicted. It's all self-inflicted. We have not had a single year of growth in the last six years. And Minister of Finance will stand in Parliament and he will tell you that the rest of the world is in the same position, but that's actually not true. Because if you were to look at over the last, say, 2014 to 2021, period 2015 to 2021, our GDP in real numbers, not nominal GDP, but real GDP, has declined by 15.7%. What does that mean? That means that what you could have bought um, in terms of obviously per capita, that's, that, that means we have less um, GDP per capita. So. When he says that our GDP in nominal terms is 100, I think he had 195 million dollars. What he's not taking into account is the inflationary aspect in the cost of production of those goods. And if you peel back inflation, we've actually regressed by close to 16% in terms of GDP. And let me put this in context. The rest of the CARICOM region who have no oil and gas improved by 3.4% in the same period. And the world, the rest of the world, improved by 24% in that same period. Facing the same external conditionalities. Absolutely. So it is not, it is, I'm not even going to say it's not true. It's absolutely false to say that we find ourselves in position in this position because of what's happening across the world. When the minister talks about the fact that our reserves are at 6.8 million and he bumps up his, he, you know, bumps up his chest and beats it and pats himself on the back and that we have eight months of cover, what is our reality? That $6.8 billion is, if you were to strip out of that, the external loans in US dollars that goes into the reserves, if you were to strip out of that, the money that's been taken out of the Heritage and Stabilization Fund, which goes into the reserves, and if you were to strip out of that, the SDRs that were gifted to us by the IMF, last year, $644 million, we are actually down to reserves of about $1.7 billion, which is less than two months less than two months cover. So everything is being masked by the minister to suit his own purposes. If you look at, look, look, think about this. We ought to be today maximizing our, our value and our revenues on oil and gas and on petrochemicals because they are in short supply across the world through no making of our own, right? The Minister of Finance had absolutely nothing to do with the increased revenues that's coming into our coffers. But yet still, having projected uh, production um, a production in oil of 86,000 barrels a day last year, that this year would be 86,000, where are we today, Paul? We're down to 57,000 barrels per day. In oil, he had predi- in, in natural gas, he had predicted 3.2 billion scuffs. Where are we today? Six billion scuffs. Right? Um, our ammonia, our urea, and our methanol production is, is down. Urea, we are down in urea production by 34%. We are down in methanol and ammonia by 87 and 8.6% respectively. Okay. Now, had we been where we ought to have been in terms of production levels, we would be doubling our revenue today. We would be talking 
of a revenue base of not 50-odd billion, which he talked about in the budget, but close to $100 billion. Now, that is incompetence as far as I'm concerned, because here we have an opportunity that has been created, uh, our own making, of course, but we have an opportunity to maximize our monetary gains on an international basis, and we've missed the boat yet again. We've missed it. And here we are telling the population that we're doing great, that everything is going to be fine, and the rest of the world is struggling just like we are. Well, that those are those are just why is why is the business community so silent on these issues? And I, and I asked the question in the context of Dr. Valmiki Ajun was just on with us, and he was concerned about the credibility of the numbers coming out of the minister budget after budget, the projections, etc. Mrs. Nunes Teixeira was concerned, and most of the people who we have had on people could say we're well, we choosing x and y but we just we try to be as balanced as possible have have uh articulated concerns even in the spotlight on the economy presentation a couple of weeks ago a question was asked directly to the minister about the credibility of his numbers not bearing fruit over the last couple of years and that certainly will have some impact on public uh, business trust and confidence and the ability of the business community the private sector to make plans and projections based on those articulations of the minister. So why are they so silent on what should be a critical issue of credibility, even if they are pro pro projections? That is what the expertise is for, to look at the scenario, look at the global factors and, and, and circumstances and make what some would consider conservative and but credible projections. I'm going to make a crucial point here. And um, it's important. One of the reasons why the business community and others are not as vociferous as they need to be is that our institutions of state do not work effectively and efficiently. And so therefore, in many instances, because our institutions of state are not functioning as they ought to be, ought to be what happens is that in many instances, getting something to work requires an intervention by a minister of government. Understand what I'm saying? Yes. If the institutions of state were independent truly and they were strong, then you would find more people speaking up because they would not be at the mercy of a minister who could make an intervention, prevent or to victimize a person in future. But that's not exclusive to this government. The, a lot um, of the stuff, this is not exclusive to this government. No, 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 absolutely. Governments hold governments accountable for decades. Absolutely, government. You see, it is in the interests of ministers, particularly those who are insecure in their portfolios, and governments in particular, to ensure that institutions are not strong. Because when institutions are strong, they are independent and they can function on their own. And if you do not need a minister's intervention to give you a favor, then there are no favors to be gotten back in return. And so therefore, it is in the interest of insecure and incompetent ministers of government and governments as a whole to keep institutions weak. Do are you saying that that's a, are you saying that that's a default position of administrations generally? No matter who governs. I'm agreeing. Richard, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you that this is a position that we, this is why we find ourselves. And I, I am not allocating all of the blame uh, of taking place in the, uh, uh, for all of our ills um, of taking place in the last seven years. We are where we are today because of 50 years of um, um, malgovernance, 50 years of malfeasance. 50 years of incompetence. That's, that's a re our reality. You know, until, until we as a people say, look, it's hurting too much now and enough is enough. Because, you know, I've said this, you, you, know, you know, guys, I've said this before. If you pick up somebody and make them a member of parliament who has never achieved anything in his or her life, and that person eventually becomes a minister of government, handling a portfolio of billions of dollars, and in control of the lives of all of the people of this country in whatever way, whether it's healthcare, whether it's finance, whether it's, you know, um, whatever, whatever ministry, 
what outcome do you truly expect as a citizen when you have put your finger and placed that person in that position? Why would you complain thereafter? If we do not insist on people of competence, it's like I said last night on another program. If you took up, if you just picked up somebody off the street and say, "Here you are, you're going to run mass, the Massey Group from tomorrow morning," what 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 outcome do you expect? And should we complain if you get a negative outcome, which is likely to be the case, most likely to be the case? Well, you know, at the end of the day, we go to our doctor to look after our health. We don't go to our neighbor next door because he's our friend. We don't go to a family member out of loyalty. We go to the best doctor we can afford because our life is important to us. But yet still we entrust our lives and the future of our children and future generations to people who are totally incompetent without a care in the world and they, and then expect a different outcome and then we complain about it. Well, that is our reality, right? You don't paint a very... Um, and you know, I, I, I hear you, Vasant, and obviously there's a transformation that has to take, take place. Is this transformation government-driven? Is it public sector-driven? Is it a combination of both in taking the country to some innovative place? And, and if it rests with the government particularly, if that's your perspective, um, what kind of change we need to see in terms of the leadership of whatever party that's leading us forward? So the government has to set the tone and the direction and instill the confidence in the private sector to invest. It has to instill the confidence in young people like Valmiki Arjun and a young lady who I, um, I admire a lot, who was on a program with me last night, Rukhaya Scott, who want to stay and live in Trinidad and to, be, to contribute to the development of Trinidad and When you listen to a lot of young people who are starting out their lives, um, uh, they, they, they're young professionals. They have a new, a young family. They want to, you know, they want to, they want to invest in in something, in a house. They want to invest in a car. They want to invest in their lives. You want to create an environment that is welcoming, and you want to create an environment that is safe, and you want to create an environment that creates opportunities for them to stay in Trinidad and Tobago, because these young people are the very same young people. Once they leave at the ages of in their early thirties, they're never returning. What they're going to do is to build, the, the, they're going to build the economies and the corporations and other countries uh, in which they live. Uh, because, and then, as I said, they're not coming back because once they are entrenched in those societies, they have a young family, they have mortgages to pay, they have to send their children to school and so on and so forth. They are lost to Trinidad and Tobago. It's very likely that their children are also lost to Trinidad and Tobago. So future generations are lost also. So a government needs to create the enabling environment for many different factors to not just survive, but to thrive and to have confidence that the future holds, um, that the, the, the future for them is a glowing one and better than going elsewhere um, to deposit themselves. That is a, that how does a government, and I mean, we, we, you're, talk, you're talking about something that's so esoteric in a kind of way because you're talking about confidence, you're talking about hope, you're talking about optimism. How does a government and, and navigate that in terms of no, how they translate that? Stems, that? Yeah, Richard, that stems from government's actions and government's credibility. When a minister of finance gets up from 2016 to 2021 and continues to talk about the revenue authority and continues to talk about gaming legislation and continues to talk about um, local government and national institute, uh, statistical institute, and continues to talk about um, special economic zones and the national ID, and none of it is done. And he says the same thing for five or six years every year. And, he, and in every government, every budget, there's no accountability or measurability of how far the government has reached because there's no accomplishments to say, we said we were going to do this last year. We've, did, we've done this. We said we're going to do this in 2018. There was a slight hiccup, but it's done now. But every budget is, we are going to do this. Notice that. We're going to do this in 2023. We're going to do it. 2024 will come and say the same thing. Now, not everybody is stupid. Not everybody's a sycophant. Not everybody's going to go rah, 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 listen to how great this budget is. The reality is young people, young professionals are going to be listening and they're going to say, well, wait now. Didn't he say that in 2016 and in 2017? He must take think we are fools. So there's a credibility issue because there's a lack of accountability 
that creates this gap, that creates this sense of hopelessness about earlier on. And there but is isn't, isn't it Rasen, on, on a fundamental level, even if you don't assess it that way, isn't it also for the ordinary citizen a fundamental question? Isn't is is my life getting better? Isn't it that's what it is for an ordinary citizen? Is my life getting better? Absolutely. And this is why I started our discussion by saying that any budget in today's world that's being read can no longer be a bookkeeping exercise, but has to be one that creates uh, robust, resilient, and inclusive growth. And you must feel at the end of the day that if you make certain sacrifices, that you are part of the process, be a time frame within which, if you are told that for the next year, sacrifices have to be made, you must know that by the end of the next year, and you must have the credible evidence based on previous promises, that by the end of this next year, your life is going to be better and that the sacrifice was the sacrifice that you made. And, and that's a simple reality of human existence. And I think compounding that is if you see your life not getting better, but the lives of other groups getting better, it is compounded. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the same country. Absolutely. Now, you see, there are going to be, there are going certain participants in an econ in an economy who can who is in a position to take advantage of certain situations and there are going to be certain people at different levels of the economic strata who will not have those opportunities to be able to take advantage and those it, it is again human nature if you place people in an advantageous situation by nature, in the majority of cases, they will take advantage of that situation to the detriment of those who are unable to do that. And that is where the inequities and the inequalities in society have to be addressed through creating opportunities for those who have less. And I'm saying that this budget does not do that. Now, when the Minister of Finance flippantly says, Oh, well, you know, the price of fuel in United States is X and the price of fuel in Barbados is Y and so on, and so much more than in Trinidad and Tobago. What he fails to tell the population is the disposable income in the person in the tax or the citizen in the United States is far greater because the minimum wage is far greater than it is in Trinidad and Tobago. So it is not a question of what the price is. It is simply a question of what the purchasing power of the money that you have in your pocket afford so the price of gas could be a hundred dollars a, a gallon it's irrelevant if you have ten thousand dollars a month coming in as your salary or fifty thousand coming in as your salary the price becomes irrelevant the price of food becomes irrelevant if you can afford it because you the minimum wage is three times what it is today so it's not the price or the cost of the matter of the issue is that matter the cost the, the issue is what can the base what can the citizen afford based on the purchasing power of the money that he or she has in her pocket or his pocket. Vasan, uh, I want to ask the same question that I had asked Mrs. Tishera and, well, Valmiki didn't get a chance to answer me. Is there anything positive about this budget? Really and truly, um, there's nothing that I can see that's going to make a difference to the lives of the people in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, even when you were, if, when you look at um, using the trickle-down effect of investments coming into the country, and you look at what's been given to the energy sector, which is our main revenue stream, the fact that the minister and the ministry and the government has not done a proper assessment for a new oil and gas regime. It tells me that the numbers that he's pulled with regard to SPT for small operators offshore and, um, and uh, larger operators um, in shallow waters is just, uh, are just numbers he's pulled 
to say that he's doing something about the energy incentives. Because without an in-depth assessment of the oil and gas sector internationally, and without coming up with a proper regime uh, for oil and gas taxation in Trinidad and Tobago, and comparing us with what exists outside to be able to gather the investment dollar into our energy sector, essentially he's just guessing. So I don't believe on the top, off the top of my head that those um, reductions, which is um, an increase of um, the SPT, uh, uh, SPT only kicks in when you get to 4,000 barrels a day for small operators. And the, a reduction in the tiered values from 18% to 15% and from 25% to 20% for larger operators. I don't think that's sufficient. And I think that's just, um, um, you know, yeah, that is just guessing. And just, you know, putting a number there without understanding truly uh, what will encourage people to invest in Trinidad and Tobago. When you look at the poultry amount of $50,000 that's been given to uh, new investment in uh, machinery. Well, I don't know, what is that? A snow cone machine that you're asking someone to buy? Uh, that's what you're, Jim. I mean, I, it is just, it to me, it is almost laughable, uh, the incentives that the minister has put together. Um, it it really, you know, and I, and, and I don't want to sound partisan because, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't want to sound, you know, uh, as though um, because I am not a PNM um, member, I am criticizing. I'm, I'm trying to give my most balanced opinion based on my ex my experience, not just in Trinidad and Tobago, but having lived and worked in many other places across the world. And I just feel that the minister continues to mislead the country um, as to what our true economic situation is. But more importantly than that, he continues to put um, in place um, policies that are not going to be helpful to the lives um, of the citizens and the improvement in quality of lives of the citizens of Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. All right, well, I don't know if Paul and Richard have anything else to add. And, and are you, are we taking calls, Steve, for Mr. Barr? All right. Um, is on me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we just have a, a minute and a half again before we wrap up with Vasan. Anything you want to um, end yeah, with, Vasan? You know, I, w I want to also mention that there's some big ticket items that that should have been discussed because they're important to the national economy. The minister said nothing about Petrotrain. Not a single word. The minister said nothing about ArcelorMittal, which has been shut down now for, I don't know, five or six years. It's a white elephant, just wasting away an asset that is absolutely wasting away. The minister said nothing about the, I just talked about the, the oil and gas, regime and where the country has read where the government's reach in terms of determining that. The minister said nothing about transfer price policy uh, uh, legislation, which he talked about, I guess, in 2016, as having lost billions of dollars because of transfer pricing by the, um, by the, the international operators here. The minister said nothing about how we're going to incorporate migrants into the workforce who are now becoming a larger and larger part of our citizenry in Trinidad and Tobago. The minister said nothing about how we are going to encourage real foreign direct investment into Trinidad and Tobago, which has declined significantly, particularly in the non-energy sector. And you, you guys may, may remember that the um, United Nations report in 2021 highlighted that Trinidad and Tobago received the least amount of foreign direct investment in the entire uh, region. But, but Mr. Barrett, yes. you, like you wanted a six-hour presentation, he did preface everything by saying that other line ministers would go would go deeper into a lot of the issues, you know. So I, I don't say, know I, if he had said anything about all what you say he didn't say about. Then we we just see them. I just still been talking. Well, uh, the fact is, he should have he, sh he should have 
not spoken a lot of the rubbish for three hours and, and actually put in a lot of these important issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that these can't be by the way issues. These are significant issues to the development of Trinidad and Tobago. That's, but that's, should, should we at least wait and see if um, the different line ministers at least raise it? So then we could then say, well, listen, the government has not addressed these concerns? Well, I guess you could do, but I'm suggesting to you that if the, the, that the, these were such important matters that they should have been raised at the expense of, of uh, a lot of the rubbish that he talked about for four hours. Mm. Mm, well, potato, potato. <laughs> well, I, it's not potato, potato. It's potato and, and um, something completely different. The mm. potato. And, 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 and therein lies the issue. These are not minuscule problems. These, these are not, you know, these are not issues to be politicking about. These are serious issues that determines, you know, it's very easy, you know, for a position where 10 years down the road, we wonder, well, how the hell did we reach here? And these are the reasons why we will reach there. Yeah. Well, we reached there now. So we should be wondering 10 years ago. Mr. Barr, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, we thank you. We appreciate your time and your contribution. Thank Have you. a great day. Be safe. Thank you. All the best to you. Take care. Bye. All right. Okay, taking a quick break. Be right back. It's hot, hot, hot. Furniture Plus September mattress sale is sizzling. Get therapeutic mattresses starting from just $999. Plus, free gifts when you buy select Serta and Sealy mattresses. Available with cash and higher purchase plans. Check press and social media for details. Every Sunday, enjoy brunch at the Cascadia Hotel for an introductory price of only $99. Brunch time runs from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Kids 5 and under, accompanied by an adult, eat for free. <laughs> so bring the entire family and enjoy in this delicious feast every Sunday at the Cascadia Hotel. Don't miss out. Call 235-4554 and make your reservation now. Brunch at the Cascadia Hotel for an introductory price of only $99. Special conditions apply. Do you need to get work done on your vehicle? Look no further than the Auto Champions. Champlay Auto Services. From vehicle inspection to shutdown service, they do it all. Champlay Auto Services. Great mechanics and technicians. Exceptional customer service with accessories galore. Champlay Auto Services is your one-stop shop. They are your auto champions. You name it, they can fix it. Champlay Auto Services. Eastern Main Road, opposite Carib. Call 662-6545 and like us on Facebook. Champlay Auto Services. We do it all. And here is your kiss, power choice. On this Regimatic Wednesday for Charles. Thank you so much to the Kiss Baking Company. I'm on your worries. I'm on your
get your kiss power choice on this hump day Wednesday, the 28th day of September. Thank you so much to Dr. Ar- well, Val Mickey Arjun, Karen Nunez Teixeira, Mr. Varsan Barra for being our guest today. Back to you for again for you tomorrow as we continue our budget discussion. All right, but this is where we wrap it up, gentlemen. But it's hump day Wednesday. I just got a picture of what the, um, what the new KFC munch pack would look like. Half of a wing, three french fries, no box. You had to hold it in your hand. <laughs> like this picture. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is where we wrap up the Power Breakfast Show this morning. Of course, just reminding you that theatre is on this weekend. Greedy People is on at Cipriani College. And of course, today is a giveaway of two tickets again. We do it on a Wednesday. There's a question to answer. You can check RSRR Productions on Facebook and see what the question is. And the first person to answer that question correctly is going to win two tickets to the play on this weekend at Cibriati College. Greedy people. I can tell you what the question is. It is in what play the Cecilia Salazar, in what RSRR production did Cecilia Salazar play a nun? That's the question. If you think you know the answer, go across to our Facebook page and you can win two tickets to the play Greedy People. Have a fantastic day. We'll speak to you bright and early tomorrow morning, Thursday. The weekend is coming closer. Mm-hmm. Have a fantastic one, people. Libra season is here. Loud oh, by the way, happy birthday to Hayden Rodriguez. I know we mentioned it earlier, yeah. Wendell. Happy birthday, Ballhead. Yeah, I, he's up and moving around, so he's hearing you. Listen. The last Richard, you want me to tell the people the last time I saw Rich um Hidden and I told that? I told when we went to buy plants. Right, 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 right. And right. I said his brain thinks he's young, but his body is old. He can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, happy birthday, Hidden. Oh, uh, <laughs> have a great day, be safe. Alrighty, happy birthday, Hidden. Have a great one. See you guys tomorrow. All right, so Charles is here for his regular Matic Wednesdays. What's your first song, Charles? What's your first song? To the left, to the left. Oh, a junior gong. You're going to play a junior gong. All right, no problem. Thank you for choosing Power the Two Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.